Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to be together to worship today. I'm glad that you can come and be a part of it. It's a very special day. Uh, Sundays always are, uh, particularly here at the Glen Allen Church. And today, of course, being Mother's Day, makes it special. And we do honor and appreciate and express our love for our wives and our mothers. Also, it's a special day because um, we're going to have a, a baptism uh, today. And uh, we so much look forward to that. Janet Tran, who's been worshiping with us just for the last couple of weeks, has expressed her desire to confess her faith in Christ and be baptized into him. And so we're looking forward to that. That's going to happen after our Bible classes. So uh, those of you who are teachers want to be sure and uh, end your classes by 1140. And then we'll assemble over in the uh, lower level of the house for Janet's baptism. Someone asked me if we were going to have it in the pool. And... Um, <laughs> I said, you know, I would, except it's covered, but if it were not for that, I would be willing, and I don't know if Janet would or not, but uh, nevertheless, we do look forward to that, and we thank God for Janet's faith and for her uh, decision to do this. Well, you've been hearing readings from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation has been described a lot of different ways, and one of those ways is that it is a tale of two cities. In a very real sense, that's true. City number one is Babylon. And Babylon is called the mother of harlots. Babylon is, in the first instance, a symbol of Rome and uh, all of its excesses and all of its uh, ills and all of its immorality. It's a symbol not only of Rome, but of all worldly powers and systems and ungodliness and everything that in, the, in this world that is in opposition to God and his will, especially the fact that it is in opposition to the Lamb and to his people. Babylon was doomed to be destroyed. In fact, by the time you get to Revelation 21, it has been destroyed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon's days were numbered, and by Revelation 21, they are ended. The other city is Jerusalem. More properly, the new Jerusalem, not the earthly city, because we're speaking in symbolic language here. But the, uh, the new Jerusalem, you notice that John says in chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now that's obviously not talking about the earthly city, Jerusalem, but it is a symbol for heaven itself. This new Jerusalem represents the people of God, the redeemed from both the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel, and the new covenant, the covenant through Jesus Christ. And we know that by the way the city is structured. Uh, the 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so together this tells us that this uh, city is the redeemed people of God, the people who have uh, sought him and followed his will and been faithful to him, now with him forever in eternity. Now, the exact relationship between the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem is not exactly clear. They seem, in one sense, to kind of be merged into one. They're just sort of all the same thing. New heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. But in the process of describing this new Jerusalem, John gives us the most complete description, I think, of anywhere in the Bible, <clears throat> of heaven itself. The language is obviously symbolic, and that's okay. 
But in the process of looking at that symbolism and trying to understand that symbolism, we find out a great deal about what heaven will be like. And that's one of our big questions, isn't it? We talked last week about what are our questions about heaven, and one of the biggest ones is, what's heaven going to be like? Well, Revelation 21 doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us a lot of things, a lot of great things. First of all, it tells us that heaven will be beautiful. How do we know that? Because we just sang a song that said so. Uh, how beautiful heaven must be. It has to be beautiful, doesn't it? Because God is there. Remember, that's what heaven is. Heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is being in the presence of God for all eternity. And that's got to be a beautiful experience in wherever God is, a beautiful place. You notice verse 11 of Revelation 21 says that the city has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We read about golden streets. We read about massive gates that they're each a single pearl. We read about the foundations of the city in verses 19 to 20 that are adorned with all these uh, precious gems, which are obviously symbolic because we don't even know what all of them are. Did any of you mothers get a chrysoprase necklace for <laughs> Mother's Day? I doubt it. We don't even know what that is. But obviously the whole effect of it is to describe brilliance and beauty. Brilliance and beauty. Everything about heaven is beautiful. Now, Scripture often emphasizes the beauty of God and the beauty of his dwelling place. I don't know how that works, you know, where the Bible tells us that God is spirit. It also tells us that we will see him someday. But it tells us that he is beautiful and that wherever he is is beautiful. Psalms 27 and verse 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist said, I couldn't ask for anything more than all my days to be able to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalms 29 verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor, some translations say beauty, of holiness. We worship a beautiful God. We worship him in the beauty of holiness. Psalms 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Isaiah 33, 17 promises that uh, the righteous, that their eyes will behold the king in his beauty. What's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? That's hard to say, isn't it? I've seen a lot of beautiful things in my life. Several years ago, I got to go to Switzerland and I saw the Alps. Those are beautiful. I got home and somebody said, is that the most beautiful place you've ever seen? I said, not any prettier than the Shenandoah Valley, uh, but it's beautiful. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful things in this life. How about the faces of your children, your grandchildren? Is that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Just think of the most beautiful thing that you can imagine that you've ever seen. And whatever it is, heaven is infinitely more beautiful, more so than we can possibly imagine. Second thing we find out from Revelation 21 is that heaven will be huge. Heaven will be huge. 
It's a big, big place. 21, in chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. An angel measures the dimensions of the city. Measures the dimensions of the city. Now, this measuring has two purposes. One is to indicate protection by God. What is measured out by the angel is under God's protection. We know that from earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 2, where the angel is told not to measure the outer court where the unbelievers are. Don't measure that, he says, but to measure only that which belongs to God. So that's one purpose, is to show this is God under God's protection. But the second thing is to impress us with its size. Its dimensions are absolutely enormous. But before we get to that, look at its shape. What is it shaped like? The song says the city lies four square. Its length and its breadth and its height are equal. That makes it a what? A cube. That's odd, isn't it? A cube-shaped city. I came from a pretty square town myself, but this is a cube-shaped city. A cube-shaped city. Now, why a cube? What else in the Bible was in the shape of a cube? The Holy of Holies in the temple. The dwelling place of God, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was a cube. 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. And so this is the new dwelling place of God, and it is in the shape of a cube, but it is also massive. Because when the angel measures it, John is told that its length is 12,000 stadia. Its height is 12,000 stadia. Its width is 12,000 stadia. Now, What's a stadion? A stadion was approximately 185 meters, so it would be about eight stadia to make one mile. And you do the math on this, and what you find out is the dimensions of the city are that it's about 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles high. That's halfway across the United States. That's the dimensions of the city. What's the point? What difference does it make, the size of heaven? I think what John is being told is simply this. There's going to be plenty of room for everybody there. You don't have to worry about getting to heaven and finding out there's no vacancy. You don't have to worry about getting there and finding out that all the rooms are filled. You don't have to worry about getting there and finding out that a quota has been reached because there's always going to be room for one more, and plenty, plenty of people will be there. There was an occasion recorded in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. And someone came up to him and asked him kind of an idle question. People were always asking Jesus all kinds of questions. This particular person came up and said, will those who are saved be few? You think, no, that's an odd question, but it wasn't to the Jews in Jesus' day. The rabbis like to debate that subject. Were there going to be a lot of people in heaven or just a few people in heaven? And so how many people are going to be in heaven? And so they debated it. So this, this man wants to know what Jesus thinks. Will those who are saved be few? Jesus does not answer that question. He goes right past that question, and he says to the questioner, strive to enter by the narrow gate. What's the point? The point he's making to this person is it does not matter whether they are many or few. You be sure you're one of them. 
You be sure you do whatever it takes to be there. You be sure that you don't miss out on, on that. It doesn't matter the, the, the number. But you know, there are always folks who are wanting to limit the size of heaven. There are always folks who are wanting to say, oh, it's just going to be a few, just a handful, you know, just the, the chosen few, only going to be the ones there. That's not what the Bible says. The book of Revelation says there's going to be a vast multitude. Look at Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. John has a vision of all the redeemed, and he says, I saw a vast multitude, which no man could number, made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation throughout the earth. A vast multitude of people. There are going to be millions and millions of people in heaven. Somebody says, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that the... Uh, gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life yes he said that but he was speaking comparatively compared to the number who are going to be lost the number who are saved are going to be few and that's a sad fact it's just a sad fact that most people are not going to believe it's a sad fact that most people are not going to turn to christ it's a sad fact that most people are going to ignore the offer of salvation through the gospel so in that sense, the number will be few, but only in a comparative sense because there are going to be millions and millions of people who throughout all of time have trusted God and trusted Christ and they're going to be in heaven. Heaven is enormous. But again, like Jesus told that questioner, the most important thing is whatever the size, you make sure you're one of them. You make sure you're there. Third thing that we're told about heaven is heaven will be different from here. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing. Heaven will be different from here. We live in a sad, <clears throat> broken world. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. God has blessed this world with many good things. But a lot of the world is sad and it's broken and it's not getting any better. And as a result of that, sometimes we just, have the, the, we just feel the need to Start the whole thing over, you know. We just need to, it needs to be kind of like one of those etch-a-sketch things, you know, where you do the little drawing and then you just shake it up and it's gone. You start all over. Uh, you just hit the delete key and start all over. That's what God's going to do. That's where the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come in. Look at chapter 21 and verse 5, one of the best verses in the Bible. The one who sat on the throne, God himself said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I'm redoing the whole thing. I'm making everything new, he says. How new? So new there won't be any death. So new that there won't be any sickness or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away, he says. Just think of it. No more hospitals. No more funerals. No more wars, no more refugees, no more loneliness, no more homeless children, no more people abusing other people, no more crime, no more fear. Who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? Who wouldn't want a world like that? Everybody wants a world like that. John Lennon wanted a world like that. In his 1971 song, Imagine, he tried to imagine a world without greed or war. His song kind of became an anthem 
for the decade of the 70s, and still is for a lot of people. It's a very popular song. And Lennon's song says this, though, and here's the problem with it. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine that the world is just what you see, in other words. He goes on to say, imagine that there's no religion. In other words, he's saying, we'd all be better off if we didn't believe in God. We'd all be better off if we didn't believe what the Bible says. We'd all be better off if we didn't believe the gospel. We'd all be better off if we didn't believe that there was a heaven or a hell. But that's the problem, you see. The problem is, this world is not like Lenin imagined. And so what's ever going to bring about the ideal world that he was looking for? He was looking to the world itself that's already broken and corrupted to bring out the perfect world because there's nothing outside of it to ever make it any better. There's no God. You see, Lenin ruled out the only one who can possibly make the ideal world a reality. What he wanted was heaven, but he wanted it on his own terms doesn't work like that heaven is a different place and it's different because God makes all things new longing for the perfect life without all the heartaches and disappointments is one of the reasons I, I found out a long time ago that older people are often much more interested in heaven than younger ones you might say well that's because they are nearer uh, it's closer reality for them not necessarily it may be closer than you think. We have a song that says that, don't we? Today I may be nearer, I am nearer to my home than ever I've been before. And none of us ever knows how close we are to heaven. A lot of folks die young. What makes heaven dearer to older people, I think, is the fact that they've seen so much more of this life. They know full well just how hard and how sad it can be, and they're ready to be done with it. Especially if they're followers of Jesus. And they believe that they're on their way to eternity in his presence. You know, there's a difference between being ready for heaven emotionally and being ready for heaven spiritually. People sometimes ask, are you ready for heaven? What do you mean by ready? Ready for heaven spiritually means that you've made peace with God through Christ. Ready for heaven spiritually means that your sins have been washed away by Jesus' blood. Ready for heaven spiritually means that you are in that relationship with God through Jesus. But just because you're ready spiritually doesn't necessarily mean you're ready emotionally. You may be like a little boy in the Sunday school class who the teacher asked one day, she said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And there are about a dozen little kids in there, and they all raised their hands except one little boy. She thought, well, he didn't understand. She said, how many of you want to go to heaven be with God? Everybody raised their hands except that one little boy. She did that two or three times, and finally she looked at him. She said, Johnny, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? He said, oh, when I die, yes, I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. <laughs> See, that's the difference. Spiritually ready is not emotionally ready. But we can be both. We can be both spiritually ready and emotionally ready. We can be spiritually ready through Christ, and we can be emotionally ready because of our hope for heaven. Something else Revelation 21 tells us is that heaven will be secure. Heaven will be secure. You know, people go to a great lengths today to try to buy security, don't we? 
try to do all kinds of things to get security. We've got security cameras and security alarms and all kinds of things looking for security. We try to invest in security. We try to buy security. Somehow it never works. Revelation 21, 17, an angel measures the wall of the city and finds it's 144 cubits thick. Now here's another strange measurement, cubit. What's a cubit? A cubit was considered to be the tip from the tip of a man's finger, middle finger to the tip of his elbow, about 18 inches. So 144 cubits turns out to be more than 200 feet. These walls are more than 200 feet thick. Why is that important? Every ancient city depended on its wall as the first line of defense against its enemies. The higher it was, the better. The thicker it was, the better. The less likely it was ever going to be penetrated. And this wall is absolutely impenetrable. It is 1,500 miles high, and it is more than 200 feet thick. Nothing is ever going to get through it. But then look at something that's strange in verse 25. He says, but the gates will never be shut by day, and there is no night there. See, in the ancient cities, they left the gates open during the day so that people could come and go. They, people lived in villages out around the city, and they would come in and trade and buy, and, you know, that's where you went to the 7-Eleven. Uh, you know, you went through the gates of the city, and so they left the gates open, and then at night, you closed the gates of the city. Or in times of emergency, if you were being attacked, you closed the gates of the city. These gates in heaven, he says, will never be shut, and there is no night there. They're not shut by day, and there isn't any night. Why aren't the gates ever shut? The answer is because there's no threat. There are no enemies. There's no evil. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be fearful of. There's nothing to keep you up at night. Wondering if you're safe. Heaven is going to be absolutely secure. Absolutely and totally secure. I've heard people ask before, if we get to heaven, is it ever possible that we could be kicked out? Can people that go to heaven ever be kicked out? And the answer to that is no. I think people get that idea from reading Milton's Paradise Lost, you know, and it starts off with Satan, an angel being kicked out of heaven. And, and so that whole mythology gets built up around that. But I don't believe that that's possible. And I'll tell you why. Because in heaven, there is no temptation. In heaven, there's no sin. So what's going to cause you to get kicked out? Nothing. There isn't any threat there. Heaven is secure. The life that we have in heaven is eternal in every way. And it is permanent. And we will never be taken away from there. Something else we're told, heaven is entirely holy. As we've seen, a lot of what makes heaven heaven is what isn't there. Chapter 21 talks about that toward the end of it, about all the things that are not there. But 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, Peter says, We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the implication is only righteousness dwells there. There's nothing else but righteousness. Verse 8 of Revelation 21 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. They're not going to get in. They're not going to be there. 
They're not going to threaten the safety of God's people. What's the point that John is making by telling us this about heaven? The point is simply this. If you want to be in heaven, you have to renounce all those things listed in verse 8. If you want to be in heaven, you have to make up your mind that you're not going to be cowardly. You're not going to be faithless. You're not going to be immoral. You're not going to be a murderer. You're not going to be an idolater. You're going to turn to God and you're going to live God's way if you want to be in heaven. You're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the, for the foundation of the world. John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. It's often been said that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. In other words, nobody gets there by accident. God has prepared this place for you. Now it's up to you to prepare yourself to be there. It's up to you to prepare yourself to receive the blessing of heaven. That's why Jesus told that man that day, strive to enter by the narrow gate. You know why the gate's narrow? Is God wanting to make it hard to be saved? Is God wanting to make it hard for us to get to heaven? Absolutely not. He's done everything he could possibly do to make it possible for us to be there. But the point of the gate being narrow is you can't get in if you try to carry all your sins with you. You can't get in if you're, if you're burdened down with all the things listed in Revelation 21.8. You can't get in if, if you're trying to carry with you all that baggage of a sinful life. You've got to get that lifted. You've got to let Christ take that away. And when that's taken away, then you can enter the gates. So that's what heaven will be like according to Revelation 21. Beautiful, huge, different, secure, and holy. Now the question is, why? Why does John give us this wonderful description of such a beautiful place? I can only think of one reason. He wants us to want more than anything to go there. He wants to whet our appetites to be in heaven. He wants to show us that nothing in this life is worth missing heaven for. It doesn't matter what you suffer. It doesn't matter what you have to go through. It doesn't matter the price that you have to pay to be with God in eternity. It will be more than worth it, the vision says. Revelation 8 in verse 18, or Romans 8, excuse me, verse 18 Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What are the sufferings of this present time? Doesn't matter. Whatever they are, whatever they are, they're not anything compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. If you want to see that glory, if you want to be a part of this vision that we've been reading about in Revelation chapter 21, if you want to live forever in New Jerusalem, Make up your mind now that you're not going to let anything stand in your way. Decide to commit your life to Christ and confess your faith in him. Turn away from a life of sin. Be baptized into union with Jesus. Have all those sins washed away. Rise to walk with him in newness of life. And don't ever look back. When you do, 
you'll be on your way to heaven. Heaven will be yours. If you're ready to do that today and you haven't yet let us know, but you want to, then we want to encourage you to come and tell us. We'll help you to know what to do next. Let's stand together and sing.